All right. Grab some notes. There's a few left here at the front if you need some. Maybe some left in the back too. Grab a Bible. We're going to look up some passages tonight. Our Wednesday night study is systematic theology, and we're just sort of taking one doctrine at a time. We're not jumping around randomly. We have a purpose in the order that we're going in. We started with the doctrine of revelation, which is foundational to everything we've done, everything we've talked about. Doctrine of revelation says, how do we know anything? How do we know anything about truth, about the world, and especially how do we know anything about God and who we are and our purpose? We've spent time talking about who God is, what his attributes are, what his character is like. We've talked about the doctrine of the Trinity, which is going to bleed over into what we discussed tonight a little bit. We've talked about creation, God's involvement in creating. Uh, we've talked about how he created the world. We've talked about how he created the angelic realm. We've talked about how he created human beings. And we spent last week talking about sin, about this intrusion into God's good creation. And so tonight we sort of turn the corner from last week's bad news and we talk about Christology or the study of Christ, the doctrine of Christ. And Christology is going to include two weeks. We're going to spend one week tonight talking about what theologians call the person of Christ, meaning who is he. You've got to understand who he is before you talk about what he accomplished for us. And then the second week, next week, we have a guest teacher. It's going to be fantastic. And we're going to talk about the work of Christ. What is it that he accomplished on our behalf? And there may be some things next week included in the work of Christ that maybe you wouldn't have thought to include in that topic. So next week will be good. Tonight we're talking about the person of Christ. And this is an important question for anybody to answer. Who do you think Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? Maybe you can think of some evangelistic Uh, sort of presentations that you've been trained in or heard of where that's sort of your opening question or your opening line. Who do you think Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? It's a great place to start with somebody and to ask that question. I want to think with you for a minute about C.S. Lewis and how he wrestled with that question and the conclusion that he came to later in life. C.S. Lewis taught on the English faculty at Oxford University. He was a Highly intelligent guy, super, super smart guy. He was raised in a religious home. They went to the Church of Ireland. And as I read around this week, I learned some new things. I like learning new things. And I started reading about the Church of Ireland. I got interested in that. And the Church of Ireland claims to be both Catholic and Reformed. Both. And if that interests you, then you can do a little digging and read about that. But it's sort of an interesting... Uh, I guess you would call it a denomination or branch of Christianity. So he's raised in the Church of Ireland. As a teenager, he started reading different things in school, and he started drifting toward atheism. And there was one argument in particular by a philosopher named Lucretius that convinced him to become an atheist, to leave his religious upbringing and to become an atheist. And this was the quote or the argument uh, that, that sealed it for him. Had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. And he found that convincing. He looked around and he said, you know, people get sick and there's bad things and there's suffering and there's pain and there's evil. And in his mind as a teenager and in many people's minds today, they look around and they see these painful things and they say, if God really made all of this, he wouldn't have made it like this. Now, you know, because many of you were here last week, we have an answer for that. It's the doctrine of sin. 
and the fall, and that affected everything that God created, everything that was under Adam's dominion. But uh, as a teenager, that sealed it for him. Eventually, he's, he's teaching at Oxford, and he starts to interact with a couple of his colleagues that have great influence on his life. And they didn't browbeat him, and they didn't Bible beat him, and they didn't just crush him with, with truth. Uh, but these two guys began to talk to Lewis and influence him. The guy on the left is Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien. And uh, yes, they all smoked pipes back then. And uh, you can't hardly find a picture of Tolkien where he's not smoking a pipe. And then the guy on the right, anybody know who that is? Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton. And both of these guys, Catholic guys, begin talking to Lewis and, and sharing uh, the truth about God with him and trying to, to win him back towards theism. And eventually it was their influence that sort of brought him back to a position initially of theism, of believing there is a God as he interacted with them and he would give, him, give these guys his arguments and they would respond and answer and they would have this ongoing dialogue. And Lewis eventually comes full circle, circle not just to theism but to Christianity, uh, to Protestant Christianity. And one of his most famous books, in fact, without question, his most famous book is called Mere Christianity. And uh, if you haven't read it, you should read it. It's not a difficult book, and it's really just an interesting read to look at. And in that book, he makes this famous argument, and he says, this is a man who spent a lot of time wrestling with who Jesus is, right? He spent time thinking, well, maybe he's just a, a good teacher. Maybe he's just some kind of prophet. Maybe he's just a crazy man. Maybe he's just a liar who made it all up. He's run the gamut on all this stuff, and he's thought about it, and he's settled that he is who he says he is. And uh, his famous argument is Jesus either has to be a lunatic, crazy man, who's delusional, you know, thinks he's some kind of Messiah, but he's not, or he's a liar, he's a huckster just tricking everybody, or he's the Lord, lunatic, liar, or Lord. And this is the passage from Mere Christianity where he sort of sums that up. You must make your choice, and he's talking about who is Jesus to you, what do you believe about him. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him for a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us he did not intend to. Basically he's saying you can't ride the fence on this deal. You can't pretend to sort of have one foot in Jesus is a good teacher and the other foot in, but he really wasn't the son of God and who he said he was. Because he says his teaching is that he was God. He called people to follow him and to worship him and to trust him. And if he wasn't who he said he was, he is not a good human teacher. You've got to make a decision about who Jesus is. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Who is he? We're going to start with this question. What do I need to know about Christology? What do I need to know particularly about the person of Christ, about who Jesus is? Okay, Number one, Christology focuses on the second member of the Trinity. You cannot have an orthodox biblical understanding of who Jesus is if you don't first nail down an orthodox biblical understanding of the Trinity which we did a few weeks ago. And we summarized the Trinity. I didn't put this on your outline, but we summarized the Trinity with the, the classic creedal formulation 
that the, the church councils settled on is that there's one God, he's one in essence, and three in person. One in essence, there's only one, but he exists as three persons, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he has existed that way from all eternity. Okay, So we're focusing on the second member of the Trinity. God the Son was involved in creation. And I gave you some verses. We're not going to look at those verses in particular tonight because we've looked at them. We looked at them when we talked about the doctrine of the Trinity. We looked at them when we talked about the doctrine of creation. But all of those verses explain to you and present to you the idea that the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, was sort of this agent of creation. So in Genesis 1, God is creating, and how is he doing it? He's doing it with words. He's speaking. And John 1 comes around full circle, and just like Genesis begins in the beginning, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was there in the beginning. Nothing was made that wasn't made through him. He made all of it. And uh, Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 echo that. He was involved in creation. You got to get this in your brain. This is important. He was not made. He was the one who made everything. Okay? No one made him. Okay? Next, second member of the Trinity. God the Son made occasional appearances in the Old Testament called Christophanies. Sometimes these are called Theophanies. But if we believe that it's the second member of the Trinity who's making this appearance, it's also fair and right to call them Christophanies. These are physical, visible appearances of the second member of the Trinity before the second member of the Trinity became incarnated in Jesus Christ. Okay? And they happen sort of sporadically throughout the Old Testament, and they're not permanent, they're just sort of a temporary thing. And I'll be honest with you, theologians, I only mentioned two, and even the two I mentioned are debated. Theologians love to argue about this. Who was it that showed up? Who was the angel of the Lord that spoke for the Lord? Who was this divine being that spoke for God and appeared to the patriarchs at different times? And so I've given you two examples. Let's just read uh, Genesis 32. We'll just read that one quickly. There's a lot of things we could talk about in this story, a lot of confusing things in this story. We're skipping over all of them just to get the idea that there was an appearance of God in a physical form. It says, Genesis 32, 22, The same night he arose and he took his two wives, his female servants, his eleven children, and he crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. If you like to make notes, I've circled that word man, man. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, I have seen God. And you can circle the word God, and you can draw a line all the way back up to verse 24, where you circled the word man. Say, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And the story goes on 
to talk about Jacob's response and as he goes to meet his brother. Most theologians would say that's an appearance of the Son of God before he took on human flesh at what we would celebrate as the first Christmas. You can look at the story of Daniel and his friends in the fiery furnace. Some theologians would say, nope, that's just an angel. Some theologians would say, oh, that's just sort of a theophany, this general appearance of God. My view would be to say that is a Christophany. That's appearance of the second member of the Trinity taking a visible human form before the incarnation. It's not permanent. It's just sort of a temporary thing. But at least when you read that story in Genesis 32, he encounters this person, and he certainly thinks it's a man. He's wrestling with a man, physical. He's not wrestling with a shadow. He's not shadow boxing. There's a real guy there wrestling with him. So uh, there's the idea of a Christophany, and we can debate that and discuss that later. Here's what I want you to understand when we summarize this idea of the Trinity, okay? Sometimes this is confusing. We have this conversation at my house. Kids get sort of confused about this, and I'll be honest with you, adults get confused about this, okay? So let's get this straight. There was never a time when the Son of God, second member of the Trinity, did not exist. He has always existed, okay? There was, we'll talk about this in just a minute, there was a moment in time, in space-time history, where the second member of the Trinity took on human flesh, and Jesus, be accurate at this point, we're talking about the incarnation, the first Christmas, to say Jesus had a beginning, right? The Son of God, second member of the Trinity, had no beginning. He was there in the beginning. He was part of the beginning. Jesus had a beginning roughly 2,000 years ago, had a beginning, and we'll talk about that mystery of the incarnation right now. Ready? This is going to hurt your brain because it hurts mine. The New Testament teaches that Jesus is God who became man without ceasing to be God. He's God who became man without ceasing to be God. Just a few clarifications here. God the Father did not become man. God the Spirit did not become man. God the Son became man. Okay? One more clarification. Jesus was not a man who obtained some sort of enlightened divine status. All right, that's the teaching of Buddhism. There was a guy, Buddha, and he thought and he thought and he thought and he reflected and he meditated and he did all the stuff and then he reached this enlightenment. He sort of reached a higher plane. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a human, only a human, who then became divine. We're talking about God becoming man while not ceasing to be God. And so let's just explain that and qualify that with a few things. Number one, Jesus was uniquely, meaning this happened once ever, is unique, uniquely conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit. That would be what we call the virgin birth. Uniquely conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit. Last week I mentioned sort of a, a side debate about how our, maybe it was a week before, how our souls are transmitted does God create a new soul every time two cells join together? Do you get your soul from your parents, from your father, from your mother, and all of those debates? Okay, in this moment, what we're saying is, and this really is sort of, you have to be careful how you talk about it and how you think about it, but you have the Holy Spirit of God 
superseding over Mary and creating new life in her womb apart from sexual relationships with another man. So she was conceived, this life was conceived in her womb while she was a virgin. And you can read scholars who try to question that and doubt that today and say, oh, it doesn't make sense, it's impossible. They say Paul never talks about this, it's not that big a deal, it's just Matthew and Luke that sort of hint around at it. And I, I just say this, attacks like that on the virgin birth are nothing new. They've been going on for thousands of years. And as long as you live on this earth, people are going to question it and doubt it and come up with arguments against it. I mean, it started within a 100 years of the church being founded, of Jesus living and dying and sending back to heaven. Uh, the Jewish Talmud attacked this doctrine of the virgin birth. And the Talmud, this collection of, of Jewish rabbinical writings, says that Mary had a relationship with a Roman soldier, even names him, named Pandera, or some translations say Pantera or Panthera. And they had this relationship, and he was this Ill, illegitimate, pardon my language, but bastard child who had no legitimate father, and this Roman soldier left. Other sources in history suggest that Mary was raped by a Roman soldier. You got all sorts of explanations, arguments against it. The biblical teaching is this idea of the virgin birth. And if you want to read that, I didn't put you passages there. I just noticed that. But you can look in Matthew's account and you can look in Luke's account. And it's obvious that what they're trying to present to you is that this baby was born of a virgin. And it was very, very controversial. One clarification, because uh, one time I almost got in a fight with an older church member about this because he thought I didn't believe in the virgin birth. And what he was talking about was not the virgin birth. He was talking about the doctrine of the immaculate conception, not the immaculate reception. That was a football game, and Franco Harris caught the ball and all that. So we're not talking about football. We're talking about the immaculate conception. Is a Catholic doctrine. has really nothing to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with Mary. It's a doctrine, let me get my year right, 1854, the church made this official dogma. 1854, that's not that long ago. 1854, official dogma of the Catholic Church that Mary, when she was conceived, it was not a virgin birth when Mary was born, but that the Holy Spirit of God superintended over the process of natural conception in a way that preserved her from original sin. So that Mary was born without the taint of original sin and Jesus could be born. And this is a, a very uh, convoluted debate in why you would come up with this idea and how you would come up with this idea. Just suffice it to say, sometimes you get the terms mis mixed up in your brain. Virgin birth, yes, we see that in the New Testament. We see it taught. It's clear. It's not debatable. Immaculate conception, made up virtually out of thin air, 1854. Clear as mud. Okay, back to Jesus. Jesus was one person with two natures. Okay, when we talked about the Trinity, I told you some things that you will never be able to fully wrap your brain around. I told you that the one true God is one in essence and three in person. Okay, you're not going to grasp that fully. You're also not going to grasp this idea that Jesus was one person with two natures. Everyone else on the earth is one person with one nature. Your person, you have a human nature, that's it. Jesus was one person who had two 
natures. And the, the union of those natures is something called the hypostatic union of Christ. And I just gave you that word so you can impress somebody this week. You don't need to know it, but you can impress somebody this week. Go out and eat with somebody and say, you know, I was reading the other day about the hypostatic union of Christ. And just say whatever you want. They'll have no idea what you're talking about. And they'll be like, I've never heard of that. What in the world? Hypostatic union. You've got two natures united in one person, okay? Now listen, that hurts your brain to think about. How can you have two natures in one person? Because our experience is one person, one nature. So you don't have a category for that. And so people in church history have really, really wrestled with it. And here are a few, a few heresies that have popped up in the history of the church, early on in the church, okay? And I'm not going to get in the weeds with this, um, docetism, just mention a few of these. Docetism, the docetist, it's the Greek word that means to appear, to seem. And they said Jesus was God who seemed like a man. He really wasn't a man. He's sort of like tricking you, like wearing a Halloween costume, God wearing a costume. He wasn't really a man. It just looked like it. Everyone thought he was. You wouldn't have known the difference. He's just God, and he looked like he appeared as a man. And the church said, no. He was really a man. That's not what we're talking about here. Okay? The docetists, just to be clear, they didn't wake up one day and say, let's invent a heresy. Let's, let's invent something that will get us kicked out of the church. Right? What they did is they're taking the mystery of the incarnation and they're trying to rationalize it out all the way through so that it makes sense. And in doing that, they end up ignoring different parts of the scriptures and what the Bible teaches about Jesus. Um, Arianism. We've talked about Arianism before. I think on Wednesday nights, Arian was a bishop that said uh, Jesus, the Son of God, was a created being. He's really, really high up, way above you. But he had a beginning. This would be the exact same thing that Jehovah's Witness teach today, Arianism. Jesus had a beginning. And we already said, no, 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 no. There was never a time when the Son of God did not exist. He's eternal from the very beginning. And they say, no, 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 he was made. He was the first thing made, and then he helped make everything else, but he had a beginning. And the church said, no, that's not what we believe at all. Um, All these different heresies. And I gave you this picture on the right. It's a picture of the Council of Chalcedon in 451. There was all these different church councils, ecumenical councils, where the church came together and they're, they're responding to heresy. They're not inventing new doctrine. They're just clarifying what the church believes to exclude the heretics from the church. And at Chalcedon, they wrote this statement. I didn't put it on your notes. I'm not putting it on the screen. I'm not reading it to you. You can Google it if you want to look it up. But they wrote this statement. They wrote it very, very carefully. And they wrote it to exclude all of these groups and to counter their teaching and to say, we don't believe that, and 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 we don't believe that. We believe what the scriptures say about Jesus, that he was one person who had two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. And you can get online and find the... Uh, the statement that they came up with, easy if you're interested in that. Chalcedon, 451. Okay, moving on. The New Testament authors clearly teach the divinity of Jesus. And we'll read a few verses here. Clearly teach the divinity of Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, verse 23, is a quote from Isaiah 7, 14. 
And it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God has come to be with us. They clearly believed, Isaiah and Matthew and the early church, that the baby that was born was God in their presence. Look at John chapter 20. John chapter 20. This is Jesus appearing to the disciples. This is the second time he's done it. He's appearing to the disciples and Thomas. And Thomas answered Jesus, my Lord and my God. Jesus didn't rebuke him, didn't correct him, didn't say, well, hold on there, Thomas. That went a little bit too far. I'm just a man who looks like a God, anything like that. He said, yeah, you got it right, my Lord and my God. Look at Romans chapter 9. Romans 9. Verse 4 says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, from the Jewish race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. The Christ is God over all. Look at Titus chapter 2. Little tiny book. If you get to Hebrews, stop and go back. Titus 2. Verse 11 says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our great God and our Savior. Okay? You get the idea. You can look at the rest of those on your own. But the New Testament clearly teaches that Jesus was God. In that, that list of verses I gave you, I certainly don't want you to think that that's it. Like those are the only ones, okay? In addition to those, you could include all of the verses in the New Testament that call Jesus Lord. The early Christians, many of them Jewish, would not have ascribed the title Lord to Jesus if they did not believe he was worthy of that title and that he was God in human flesh. Uh, you can look at the attributes of Jesus, things that Jesus does that the rest of Scripture says only God can do that. Things like forgiving sin, things like controlling the weather, walking on water, raising the dead, healing the sick. Those are things that God has the power to do and Jesus does them. You can look at people worshiping Jesus. We talked about Thomas, people bowing down to him, people praying to him. All examples in the New Testament that they thought Jesus was God. Okay? The counter to that is the New Testament authors also clearly teach the humanity of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus. We'll look at two or three of these. Look at 1 Timothy 2. If you're in Titus, you're really close. Flip back to the left. 1 Timothy 2 says, verse 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He is a man, man, Christ Jesus. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It 
says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. It's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, people. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He became like us in every respect. Uh, you can look at 1 John 4. It talks about Jesus coming in the flesh and people who deny that and argue against that. Look, in addition to that, in addition to the verses I've given you here about the humanity of Jesus, you could look at the passages. Uh, for example, Luke 2 talks about Jesus growing up. Right? He didn't just beam down as this perfect grown man. He was born as a baby and he grew up and he learned things. He didn't know everything in his human nature when he showed up on this earth. He learned things. He learned dif- different things through experiences. Bible verses talking about Jesus eating and drinking physically. Right? It's not just God with a Halloween costume on like the Docetists say, but He had a real body that could eat and digest and get headaches and all the things that we experience. Um, You talk about Jesus uh, getting hungry. You talk about Jesus getting thirsty. You talk about Jesus eating and drinking and all these things. Ultimately, you talk about Jesus dying. It's a very human thing to do, and he experienced that. So teaches that he's God, teaches that he's human. One last thing that kind of hurts your brain, and we'll move on to something a little easier. Okay. Jesus will forever exist as fully God and fully man. And I think that's something that a lot of Christians haven't really wrestled with and thought about. I think a lot of Christians have the idea that the incarnation was a temporary thing. Like he took on human form, he did his thing here, then he went back to heaven and he's back to being God again. But the biblical teaching is that the incarnation had a beginning but it will not have an end. He will always have a human body. That's why when we talk about the resurrection, we talk about the bodily resurrection of Christ. It wasn't just a phantom or a ghost or a spirit that rose from the dead. It was a body that rose from the dead. When we talk about the return of Christ, we're not talking about some spirit floating towards us. We're talking about somebody with a body coming back. Uh, so Jesus will forever exist as fully God and as fully man. You can look up these verses. They talk about the resurrection and the return of Christ, all of that stuff. Now let's talk about something a little more concrete, okay? You remember the story in Matthew, I think it's 18, Matthew 16, Matthew 16. Jesus is with the disciples at Caesarea Philippi. And he looks at him and he says, who do you say that I am? That's sort of the question we started with, right? Who do you say that Jesus is? And he posed that question to his disciples. And they give the answers that are floating around in the air. Some say Jeremiah. Some say one of the prophets. Some think you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead, got your head put back on, and you're John the Baptist. Uh, That was Herod, who was paranoid about that, thought that his sort of nemesis had gotten his head put back on and was coming back to get him. So all these answers, and then he says, who do you say that I am? And you remember Peter's answer. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's this answer that you are the Christ. 
And so let's talk about that just for a moment. The title Christ or Messiah, Christ is the Greek word, Messiah is the Hebrew word. It means anointed one, and it describes a threefold office. It describes Jesus being our prophet, being our high priest, and being our king. Our prophet, our priest, and our king. And I've given you all sorts of verses here. We're not going to read all of those New Testament verses. What I want you to do is flip to the Old Testament, and I want you to see these, where did I get prophet, priest, and king? Why not judge or some other title that we could apply to Jesus? Why prophet, priest, and king? It's because in the Old Testament, these three offices were anointed for service. And the title Christ means the anointed one. You read through the Old Testament scriptures, you see prophets anointed, priests anointed, kings anointed. So under that heading of the anointed one are all of these ideas. And I just want you to see that quickly. Look at 1 Kings 19. First Kings 19, verse 16 says, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And, there's the idea of kings being anointed. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. So you see this idea that the prophet was anointed physically. You anoint him. So it falls under this idea of the Christ or the anointed one. Flip back and look at Exodus 30, 30. Exodus 30, 30. It's talking about Aaron and the priesthood and his sons. And it says, you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. So there's a second idea. Priests were anointed for their service. Then go back to 1 Kings chapter 1. We'll see this idea of kings being anointed. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 34. It says, Let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel, then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. Those are not the only passages in the Old Testament that talk about these offices being anointed. I just gave you one of each so that you understand in your mind the anointed one. Who is the anointed one? He's the prophet, he's the priest. And the king. And in Israel, all of those things were sort of divided. There was like a separation of powers, a separation of duties. And the priests had to come from the Levites, and the kings were supposed to come from Judah, and the prophets were sort of a mixed bag. Sometimes they were priests, and sometimes they had different roles and from different tribes. But Jesus unites all those under one heading. And when we say, when Peter says, You are the Christ, all of that's involved in it. Today, we're just so familiar with that term, Christ. We don't think about the meaning of it. And a lot of people just think yeah, that's like his name. That's like his last name or his middle name or just something that you tack on. Or it's just a curse word you say. And you use Jesus Christ as sort of an expletive when you're surprised or frustrated. But when Peter said it, it had a whole lot of meaning. You are the Christ. He's acknowledging you're the prophet that God promised to send. Not just another prophet, but the prophet. You're the priest. 
the high priest, not the one who's going to offer animal sacrifices, but the one who's going to offer a final sacrifice for sin. And you're the king who's going to rule over everything. And Peter sort of has all those ideas in his mind. Okay? Why does this matter? Why do we need to know about Christology? Number one, when you think about the miracle and the mystery involved in the incarnation, that's God becoming man, we should be moved to humility, awe, and worship. That takes us right back to Luke 2 and the Christmas story. And we ought to just read a few verses here. Luke chapter 2. Verse 8, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear, awe, fear. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign, you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God or worshiping God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see the thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, found Mary, Joseph, the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Mary treasured these things in her heart, pondering them. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen and heard. Humility, awe, worship. When you think about this miracle. Secondly, because Jesus is fully God, he's able to pay the infinite price for our sin. And because he's fully human, he's able to take our place as a substitute. This is really, I'm dipping into next week's lesson just a little bit, just putting one toe in the pool to say that who Jesus is has everything to do with what he came to do for us. And because he's God, he can take the infinite punish that our sin demands. You say, why does our sin demand an infinite punishment? It's because it's against an infinitely holy God. That's why. And Jesus, as God, is able to take the full brunt of that. He's able to take the cup of God's wrath and drink it all the way to the bottom. And because he's fully human, he can take our place. That's what Hebrews is arguing in chapter 2. We read that. He had to become like us. He had to be made like us so that he could make this sacrifice and be our substitute. The one theologian that put these two ideas together, I didn't get you a picture. I ran out of time. His name was Anselm, and he wrote a book called Why Did God Become Man? And this is the gist of his argument. He lived an awful long time ago. And he said, look, to take the punishment and all its horror had to be God. A human being could never take it all for the world. And to take it in our place had to be human. Couldn't be a cow. Couldn't be a, a lamb. Couldn't be an angel. Had to take on human form. So why did God become man? So that he could take our place. Number three, these are pretty obvious. Because Jesus is our prophet and he speaks for God, we must listen to him. Hebrews 1 says God has spoken to us in these last days through his son. And if he has, then we ought to listen. When Jesus tells us to do something, we ought to do it. You ought not question it. You ought not debate it. You ought not discuss it or memorize it and talk about it. But do it. 
You listen to him. Because he's our priest and he's our mediator, we trust him. It's an audacious thing in John 14. This is the the night before Jesus is crucified when he looks at his disciples and he says, believe in God, believe also in me. It's kind of putting yourself up there. But because he knows I'm about to take this punishment for them, I'm about to serve as their great high priest and offer this sacrifice once for all time, they can trust in me. So John 14.1, believe in God, believe also in me. We trust him as our priest. Five, because he's our king and he rules the cosmos, we submit to him. We won't read Philippians 2 because we're talking about it on Sunday morning, last week and this week. But he is certainly worthy of our submission. And as I thought about this, as I studied this afternoon, I thought of one more I wish I had put on there. And I don't have a slide for it and I don't have a a blank for you, but I just sort of, I guess, verbalized my thought. Is that when you study church history, you see people twisting this doctrine all the time. Playing with it, changing it, tweaking it. They don't set out to say, I want to invent something false. That's never their intention. Um, their intention is to try to, to rationalize it, to, to wrap their arms all the way around it, to make sense of it. But just like at the Council of Chalcedon, they had to look around and say, that's not what we mean by Jesus. Today, we have to be willing to do the exact same thing. And the old analogy goes like this. Get the phone book out. And look up John Smith. If you know a guy named John Smith, and I know one in Amarillo, John Smith. You look up John Smith in the Amarillo phone book, there's 800 John Smiths listed. I only want one of them. Just because another guy goes by John Smith doesn't mean that's the guy I want. People don't use phone books anymore. So you say, get on Google and Google John Smith and see who comes up. And you're going to get lots of different people come up. But if you know a guy named John Smith, you don't want all these other guys. You want one of those guys. And the very simple logic applies to Jesus. There's a hundred people in West Texas talking about Jesus. And if you really sit down and listen to some of them, you realize that's not the guy I'm talking about. That's not the guy that I'm following. That's not the guy that I believe in. It's not an attempt to be ugly to people or to be hateful to people, but just to be honest about The Jesus you're talking about is not the Jesus I see in the scriptures and is not the Jesus that my hope is in and my my confidence is in. And sometimes when you get the right Jesus, it puts you in the minority. There was a guy named Athanasius, and he was the guy who stood against Arius and Arianism. And in his day, the saying was, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world, because it seemed like Everyone agreed with Arius, and he was all by himself, the only one standing for the truth. And it made him unpopular, and it made people hate his guts, and it made uh, him experience persecution in his life, and it disrupted his family life and his career and all of that stuff. But he stood for the truth. And in our day, I don't think it's all that different. We live in a place in the Bible Belt where everyone's happy to talk about Jesus, where not many people are going to push back when you say the name Jesus. But when you start to get specific and you start to talk about what the Bible says about him, you'll find people bristling and saying, well, I don't, I'm not sure about all that. 
That's where you have to stand on the truth and say, it's not popular, doesn't always tickle ears, but what does the Scripture say about Jesus? And that's where we take our stand. And as you'll see next week, what you believe about who Jesus is has great impact on what you believe he accomplished for us. So I'm going to mention two books and we'll wrap up. I have the others up here if you want to look at them, flip through them. One is Mere Christianity. Um, You really should read it. It's not a hard read. It's about 200 pages, and there's a lot of space on this page. The words aren't small, and uh, it's, it's just an interesting read, especially when you think about the journey that Lewis took in his own life um, from faith to atheism back to faith again. The other one I'll mention is What Jesus Demands from the World, and this is a great book. I guess you would say that it sort of focuses on Jesus as our prophet, is the one who tells us what to do of, of what God expects of us. And he goes through and he just talks about some of the things that Jesus demands that we do. And I think some people have never thought about the fact that Jesus commands us to do certain things. He doesn't just suggest them, but he commands them. He commands us to repent, to believe in him, to love him, to listen to him, to take up your cross and follow him. Jesus commands you to rejoice and leap for joy. He commands you to make war on your pride. He commands you not to be angry. He commands you to love your enemies. He commands you not to take an oath. What does that mean? He commands us not to take an oath. He commands you to give to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Lots of different thoughts in there, and it's an interesting read. So that's Christology part one. Who is Jesus? Next week, Christology part two will be uh, what did he do for us? What is his work?